Hi, Greg Perry of the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9. Um, moving in a little bit of different direction from colonial clock making and clock shops and um, into another thing that's in my studio right now, which is uh, lacquer. So let's talk about uh, Chinese and Japanese lacquer in the period, 17th, 18th century. Um, Yurushi lacquer, we've, we've spoken about it just briefly before, so... Um, so this episode is going to kind of encompass what is exactly is lacquer when we talk about it. So I may do a debauchery of some of these, uh, some of these Chinese names coming up, but, uh, we'll try and, we'll try and get through them. So, but in the, in the world of collecting, um, it is not always useful and often very necessary to begin with definitions. So let's start there. Nowhere is there so more true as the case of Chinese and Japanese lacquer, better known as just lacquer. It is common to hear quite well-informed persons use the term of three quite different things, two of which are not lacquer at all. So one of these is Indian, Burmese, and Singhalese, lacquer, a gummy deposit left on trees in those countries by an insect called the Cocos lacta, Hence, the Hinsosteri term lacca. The second came into being following the appearance in Europe of articles decorated with this, quote, lac, as we're going to term it. It was adapted in various forms as shellac or resin lac in turpentine or other oils and used to produce the Japaning effects on wood and metal. The product is to be seen in Japan furniture and small objects of the 18th and 19th century, and also the well-known decorated metalware of Pontypool and Wolverhampton, the English version of the continental toll paint. So we are left with lacquer itself. This is no kind of insect deposit, be sure. That's shellac. But the natural juice, the lac deposit, the natural juice tree, called the Chinese shishu, and recorded in, in literary work since the 17th century BC, in association with the name of the tree, with that of hemp, has suggested that the earliest use of this tree was a base of hemp cloth, like the Japanese dry lacquer. The lac tree now flourishes in South China, Korea, and Japan. But there is evidence that it once had a much broader distribution. It is grown in plantations and is tapped at about every 10 years, yielding a thick grayish syrup which contains an average of 20% of water, 2% of albumin, 4% of gum, and 74% of the vital fluid, urushic acid, or as we call it, urushi, which is a hydrocarbon which, in polymerizing, when it is exposed to oxygen, so it's, it's fluid when it's in the tree, but when exposed to oxygen, it forms a chain of polymers, and it forms a, solo, a solid, non-penetrable surface. So, I would call this one of the world's one of the world's earliest plastics. 
So you may see specimens of cut tree trunks, tools, and other materials used for the process in the Royal Botanic Gardens at Crewe in Surrey. On exposure to air, raw lacquer, as we just said, spigoted out of trees, turns first yellow-brown and then jet black. So all those black lacquer pieces of furniture you see from the 18th century in England um, that were done with the Rushi started out as a clear syrup and then turns jet black. After various processes of cleaning, dehydrating, and purifying, various substances are added and then it is stored in airtight containers. This is today. When in use, the product shows the most remarkable properties, unequaled by any substitute or imitation. We've tried for years now to, um, to duplicate in the, in the laboratory its, its, uh, its durability, but we just can't do it. You can put this on the bottom of ships, and uh, you know the boats could be in the ocean for many years, and it just it's impenetrable. So the interesting thing is, contact with moisture does not soften, but hardens it, apparently indefinitely. So when it sets those polymers in motion, they're permanently locked. When the Japanese archaeologists ex excavated the low-lying tombs, where important finds were made of Shang archaic jades, they found that many of them had been flooded for centuries. And although the lacquer objects had moved about in the water, they had suffered absolutely no damage. Even in modern times, well, when the ship returning the Japanese exhibits at the Vienna Exhibition of 1878 was wrecked, the divers who recovered the cargo 18 months later found the lacquer objects totally unharmed. The wood was totally encased in the Urushi lacquer, remained unharmed. Lacquer also has a high resistance to heat and to acids, and in fact forms an extremely tough protective envelope for materials which, if they had been exposed to moisture or even air, would have perished long ago. Its own, its really own susceptibility, in fact, is to bright light, which appears to cause it to fade and dry out and even to decompose causes more or less of a fracturing through the surface. So lacquer really derives its immense toughness from itself. That is to say, objects worked up in it are made of a layering process of many coats, sometimes as many as 30, each being ground down finely with whetstone and various abrasives, and at the last given a polished, unsurpassed by enamel or even pottery. When this has been done, it presents to the artist a material which can either carve to his fancy, paint, or colors or inlay with other materials. So when you see a Japanese screen from the late 16th, 17th, or 18th, uh, 19th centuries, this lacquer, when you see carved figures, it's actually carved, can be carved out of this. It's not actually carved into the wood. So the beginning of the story, of course, is the support the base on which the lacquer is to be applied. This is usually wood, as we've just spoken about. Although there are some interesting exceptions, as we'll talk about later. The wood used is mostly a soft, even-grained pine, which can be worked down to a great fineness when required.
It is then prepared thoroughly by stopping and filling cracks and holes with layers of various compositions, including the sesame lacquer, which is then taken from the smaller branches of the tree. The preliminary work is essential to provide a perfect foundation for the lacquering to come. And large objects may be given a covering of hempen cloth or paper so as to isolate the support and completely keep it immune to any other outside moisture or air. And is now ready for the operation of lacquering proper. And this is a matter of letting each coat dry and grinding it smooth before applying the next coat. The thickest layers come first, the thin ones toward the top, the abrasives being varied in the same way, and much use is made of the dark house, a chamber kept damp as to provide the atmosphere in which the lacquer will attain its maximum hardness. The lacquer object is now ready for decoration. The main methods are as follows. Carving, dry lacquer, painting, gold and silver decoration, shell work, inlaying and incising, and lacquer grounds. And I, I did a, an apprenticeship um, with a, a one of the leading lacquer specialists, or the leading lacquer specialists in the United States. And when they... Um, when they're doing their lacquer art, they put it in a very dark room, virtually no light, and uh, they took a, a, like plastic sheeting like you would f used to see on the top of uh, like very early skylights in the 1970s. It was almost corrugated, and they would put uh, drill many, many thousands of holes, and they'd flood the top surface with water, and it would actually drip down, dripping down in the darkness to solidify that coat of lacquer. Um, over a time period, it would come out, be abraded down, and then the next lacquer coat would be laid down, and then this would go back in the same dark room that's dripping with water. All these headings that, we, that I just mentioned subdivide into dozens of categories, and the principal ones will be discussed later on in this episode. Showing examples were possible, but in many pieces, different kinds of decorations have been combined. There are also variations in practice in different eras, and also as between China and Japan. So, I'm going to talk about the lacquer technique now. So, we're going to go through that list of, of techniques. Carving. To collectors in the West, carving is the most characteristic type of decoration on Chinese lacquer. The two terms in general use it for are carved lacquer of all kinds, and for specifically carved red or Peking lacquer. If the Chinese have been surpassed by the Japanese in other fields, there is hardly any doubt that they remain the masters of this particular technique. Here, the usual process of adding layer after layer of lacquer goes much farther and much greater thickness, thicknesses are attained, sometimes as much as a half inch. Instead of building up forms, as in relief work, layers are superimposed one on the other with exact precision, and the carver works from the top, knowing exact, exactly the level to which he can go to reach the differently colored layer below. He works with a V-shaped cut, 
taking great care to remove very little of the lacquer at any one time. Most Chinese carved lacquer is colored by cinnabar, which gives varying tints, ranging from something like a clarinet to a sealing wax red, the latter being the more common. Other colors include several shades of tints of buff, green, brown, and black. These are often found layered over a ground of cinnabar and cut through so as to display them. Some elaborate pieces with battle scenes have figures inset in jade, malachite, and other hard stones. The finest specimens of Chinese carved lacquer come from the imperial factories at Peking, which were set up around the year 1680 by King Kang Sai, emperor to produce all kinds of work of applied art in lacquer. The craft reached its zenith in the Shenlong reign of 1736 through 95, and some fine specimens of this work are to be seen in the Victorian Albert Museum, including a magnificent pair of vases over three feet in height decorated with nine dragons and the five-clawed imperial style. There are also large throne tables and other items of furniture. Imitations of carved lacquer have been made by the Chinese since the last beginning of the Ming Dynasty. An account published in the year 1387, translated by Dr. Stephen Bushell, and the book was Chinese Art 1904, described how carved red lacquer was simulated by working the design in relief with a kind of putty made of lime and simply lacking over it with a coat of cinnabar lac. Hence the name painted red lacquer, or plastered in red. A carved effect is also imitated closely in lacquer, later designated by the Japanese term komisha bori, which consists of relief carving in wood or horn, which has been lacquered on the surface. These types are usually detectable by their being lighter in weight than true carved lacquer and they also frequently show bruises and indentations which would not have occurred with solid lacquer. A special kind of carving is seen in guri lacquer, which comes in a number of colors, usually black and red, but is carved with sloping cuts to show the beautiful layers. The Japanese, who adopted lacquer carving in the Algonqui period, 1336 through 1575, have their own names for the various types they have made. Tushishi is carved red lacquer in general, but on a more particular note, red lacquer shallowly carved on a black ground or or black ground plate. So there is a black surface over a red ground with striped red and black showing in the carving. On the right, side of most imperial boxes, um, and this is the beginning of the Ming work, uh, is carved in black on a ground of red diapers in three patterns. For example, two kinds of florets and a type of swastika, believe it or not. The cover is laid out in three compartments, the center one of which appears to represent the visit of an emperor in the chariot of the house of a noble attended by fan bearers 
and men bearing ducks in dishes. So in all these Ming-type boxes, all this holds rather true and it, through the entire reign. So in the upper panel, um, there's usually a sage receiving a scholar with two attendants who bear bundles of rolled pictures. While in the lower panel, a gentleman shooting with a bow at a target, which bears the design of a stork. Another fine example of lacquer carving, this time dating from the Kang Haisai reign, is the bat-shaped sweet meat box, evidently also of the kind designed for making a gift on some important occasion. The conventionalized bat form with the central ornament of the character in combination with a swastika type wisted the recipient 10,000 years of happiness once receiving this as a gift. In another form, a peach form, also emblematical of longevity, is used for the even more remarkable gift box, and one of these is located in the V&A also in London. Here the idea of the form is carried out with a relief of a peach tree with flowers and fruit springing from a rock but also a pair of bats. The stem of the tree is in carved wood, but the flowers, fruit, and foliage are in green and yellow jade, lapis lazuli, turquoise, amethyst quartz, and carved red lacquer, all inlaid or mounted into a diapered ground. So I think we're going to stop there, and we're going to pick up the next episode with uh, dry lacquer, painting of lacquer, etc. So, um, hope everyone enjoyed this introduction to Yurushi lacquer, Japanese and Chinese. Um, and uh, let us not forget, this is a, a direct relative of poison sumac, that, that low-growing bush that we see here in the States. In a f- actual fact, it is the sumac tree which uh, gives us the, the Yurushi lacquer. And uh, when I was apprenticing, I had three or four drops of old lacquer, I was working on a restoration. Three or four drops splatted on my wrist, and within an hour, my entire chest was filled in both arms and had to go to the hospital. So that's how deadly and dangerous this. This does not stop um, if the object uh, has been made for many, many years. So it's still viable. And that particular object was over 300 years old. So Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.